as we look around us today, we have to ask the question, are we living in the last days? As we think about the thought of living in the last days, then we have to look at us as as those that are in the church and members of the body of Christ and ask ourselves, if we are truly in the last days, are we alert and aware or or are we asleep at the wheel? Are we walking by faith or are we living in fear? Are we walking with a sense of joy in God's sovereign control over his world and over his universe? Or are we walking with our heads down, wondering if we're really going to make it or not? Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the passages that Paul shares with the young preacher Timothy about the last day. So take your Bibles this morning and turn me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to pick up today in verse number 1. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 1. 1 Timothy 4, 1 says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. And with that, let's pray. And God, I ask that you would take these next moments that we share together. And Lord, that you would speak to us and that you would move. Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't really know Jesus as their Savior, I pray that you would open their eyes and open their heart today. Lord, if there are believers who are not walking by faith, but walking by fear in these days, I pray, God, that you would make them aware and ready. May they stand on the foundation of your truth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Since eternity passed, we know that there has been a battle between God and the evil one, Satan. 
And we know that God has called man to hear and to heed his voice. And the evil one has constantly come and tried to pull men away from God's word to uh, and, and deceive them to follow his will. The evil one wants to steal, to kill and destroy, as John 10, 10 says. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. But in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 1, it says, Now the Spirit expressly or explicitly, it is very clear that the Holy Spirit is making this an obvious truth for us in the here and now, that in the latter times there are going to be those who depart from the faith. This should sadden us, this should burden us, but it should not surprise us, unfortunately. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God tells us some of what is going to happen in the last days. I think as a young man who had just surrendered to ministry and was given a bus route in my senior year of high school, this really, uh, this, this truth came to, to play in my life as I began to understand about people leaving and departing the faith. I was going around picking up kids to ride the bus to church so that they could hear the message of Jesus Christ and how they could be forgiven and how they could have Christ in their life and be saved. And, and so I'm, I'm going and picking up kids and there was a boy whose name was Rhett. Sound like a familiar name named after Gone with the Wind, Rhett. Uh, so anyway, his name was Rhett and Rhett was an older elementary school child and he Uh, After he had heard the word preached in children's church and after someone had talked and spent time with him, came and received Jesus Christ in his life. So as the bus captain over that route, I went to his parents and said, hey, I want you to know that that Rhett has come to understand what the Bible says about us, that all of us have sinned and we're separated from God. And because of that, God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us and he rose again. And Rhett has received Christ into his life. And the parent, the the father said, oh, well, that's great news. We're both Christians. And I walked away from that discussion just a few moments later thinking, you're both Christians? And yet you're sending your child to church on a bus? And it was just a matter of a few weeks later when I came and knocked on the door and they said, we're moving, we're separating, and the kids won't be able to ride the bus anymore. And I thought, dear God, how can someone who truly knows Jesus as their Savior just say, look, we don't care about the faith, we don't care about the Bible, we don't care about our family, we don't care about our legacy, we don't care about eternity. And let me tell you, as a young uh, guy just getting started in ministry, it was like, what is going on? Can I tell you the sense that I felt preaching my first Easter? I've been a pastor this this uh, coming year, uh, in 2020, November, it will be 24 years. My first Easter, I preached, and I thought everybody would come back the next week. How naive. But to think that in our country and in our nation, we have adopted this form of, of a cultural Christianity where I can go and put on a happy face and, and I can say I prayed a prayer somewhere back when I was a little child and, and not ever have to do anything in my faith. And yet the Spirit explicitly, 
clearly says that there are going to be those that are in, but they're not really in, and they will depart. So as believers, we need to be alert, and we need to be aware of the times in which we live, and we need to work hard to stand fast in God's word so that we will run our race, finish well, and hear those words, well done, good, and faithful servant. So let's think about this. As believers, first off, we need to be alert in the last days. Notice what it says back in verse number one. It tells us that the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. Now, as we think about the latter times or the last days, we recognize that the last days is that that period of time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Now, we do not know when Jesus will come again, but we have this absolute steadfast assurance that just as the promises that were made hundreds of years before Jesus came, that Jesus is coming. And the picture from Revelation says he is coming quickly, which gives us the picture he may be already on the way. So we find that in the latter times, there's the time in which we live. And this is what we know for sure. It's later now than it's ever been. And because it's later now than it's ever been, then we need to be aware because some people will depart from the faith. The word depart that is used here is a word that is normally used in geography. Someone is one place and they pick up and they go somewhere else. They leave one destination, they come to a new destination. They leave one place, they come to another. Here, Paul takes that and drives that home spiritually and says that there are some who are, quote, in the faith or they have known about the faith and they were here and they were in church and they were lined up and they looked good and they showed the outward signs, but they have departed from the faith. Now, when you think about the the kind of person this is, we have to think about Judas. Judas got to see all the miracles of Jesus, hear all the preaching of Jesus, and no doubt somewhere along the line, Judas probably preached a sermon or two or 10 or 20 himself. That when the disciples went out, Judas went out with them. He gave all the outward appearance of having the faith, and yet we know that he departed, betrayed Christ, and had nothing to do with having the faith in his heart and his life. The picture is, is that we need to search and make sure that we are in the faith, because he says in the latter times, there will be some who depart from the faith. And yet he gives uh, not only that picture of, of being alert because people are going to depart from the faith, but notice the next thing that he says. They are going to depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. There are going to be people who are deceived by false doctrine. He mentions too here in this passage, we've already read it. He says that there are going to be some who forbid to marry, and some who are going to say, you have to abstain from these foods. Now, this was in this day, and, and one of the issues that were going on, and some of the people taught, well, your spirit and your spiritual life is good, but you can't do anything for your physical or fleshly life. And so they say, well, part of your marriage involves a physical intimacy, so you shouldn't marry. And there is some food out there that has been offered to idols, and because that's been offered to idols or, or some in other way, then you shouldn't have anything to do with food. And the picture is, is that these were two false doctrines of that day. We have these kinds of things that go on 
in our world today. That you need to trust Jesus, but you need to do this as well. For the church at Galatia, it was, hey, if you're going to really know Jesus, then, then you've got to trust Jesus and you've got to be circumcised. It was adding legalism into the equation that said Jesus by himself is not enough, but you have to do something else. See, there's a lot of false gospels that go on in our world today. A works salvation that says, yeah, I, I can have a little Jesus, but I've got to make sure and get baptized. I've got to be a member of a church. I've got to give money. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to check off all the religious boxes. I've got to go to this class. I've got to be confirmed in this way. I've got to do all these kinds of things. And that's not the picture. The Bible tells us that by grace are we saved through faith in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, not by works lest anyone should boast. So there's a false gospel that says you have to have works. And and some say, well, if my good just outweighs my bad, I have some some good moral character and conduct, and my good outweighs my bad, I'll get to heaven. Listen, that will never work for anyone ever. There's the false gospel. There's the false gospel of Jesus plus. There's the false gospel is that, that says as long as you're sincere about what your belief, you're okay. As long as you're sincere. As, as long as you believe that there's a God out there and, and you're sincere, then, then you're okay. Can I tell you, that's a false gospel. But people think today, as long as they have a sincere faith, that they have a saving faith. And the two are very different. Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12 makes it very clear that there is only one name whereby we must be, we, we must be saved. That being the name of Jesus, Jesus made it very clear in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now understand that we as Christians believe in a very exclusive gospel and a very exclusive eternity that there's only one way to get there, and that is through Jesus alone. None of us can earn it. None of us can deserve it. None of us can get there by our sincerity. No matter what religion we become, no matter what ism we believe, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is enough alone. But then there's also the false gospel that's uh, of the false teaching today that says, look, you're just a product of chance. You you developed over millions and millions of years from a a one uh, cell amoeba to the person that you are today, and one day you're just going to die. This is it. That's a false teaching today. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry, because when you die, you're just going to be dead. And yet Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 27 says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. The Bible makes it very clear that as we look around us, there's a lot of false people who want to add people who want to take away, people who don't believe anything at all, people who are sincere in their belief, but can be sincerely wrong. He says there are going to be people who depart from the faith. There are going to be people who are deceived by false doctrine. And then he says that there are going to be people who have a seared conscience. Notice what he says in in this passage. They are going to experience a seared conscience. Notice in, in verse number four, These doctrines and these doctrines and teachings of demons, he says, they're speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. When we think about the word seared, it means the word, in in our English, we would use the word cauterize, okay? You got a, a, 
a medical procedure where they carterize something, then they burn it. And here the picture is, is just as a hot iron falls uh, on your life and here falls on your heart and on your conscience, then you lose the ability and the sensitivity to determine right from wrong and good versus evil. Do you wonder and ever think of how can people do this? How can people act this way? How could someone treat another person this way? And the picture is, is that they have lived and thought and done so much evil in their life that now they have a seared conscience, that they can't determine even right and wrong, good or bad anymore. They're completely oblivious to it. They are insensitive to morality anymore. Timothy McVeigh in 1995 put the bomb that uh, destroyed the uh, federal building in Oklahoma. 168 people were killed. When he was going to uh, be executed in 2001, his, his words were, I am the captain of my own ship and the master of my own fate. It's all about me and I can handle it, and we would say that's someone with a seared conscience who doesn't care about anyone around them, who has lost the sensitivity, no sense of remorse, repentance, no sense of getting things right or asking forgiveness. It was, hey, I am who I am, and that's the way I'll die, a seared conscience. You need to be alert in the last days. Don't be surprised when people pack up and and they were raised in church or they went to church for a while, but somewhere along the line, a, a, a professor or maybe their own morality just leaves them to a place where they say, "Look, we're going to go do what we own, that what we want," and and, and we're willfully and purposefully saying we're not going to believe the Bible anymore. We're going to believe what we want, and then over time, their conscience becomes seared. But Paul gives Timothy a great challenge. He doesn't say, oh, Timothy, man, life's really going to get hard and it's going to stink in the last days. And uh, man, you're just going to have to hide. I mean, you, you might make it out by the skin of your teeth. No, Paul has this great challenge to Timothy that I want to challenge you with today. As we as believers live in the last days, listen. We know Jesus is coming. We know we have victory. We know we fight from victory, not for it. We know we have him in our life. We know he'll never leave us nor forsake us. We know our name's already written in heaven. We know we're in his hand. And so, how are we to respond in the last days? First off, we need to be active in the last days. We need to be active. And notice one of the areas that we need to be active as believers, we must stand on God's word. Now, notice at the end of verse number five, he says, you know, those things that they were talking about, he says, look, it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Don't worry about food. If, if God's given it, sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Now, notice he says in verse number six, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith. Here's the key. As believers, we need to think biblically. We stand on God's word 
But listen, as we approach the last days, he's talking about being nourished in God's word. He's talking about the power of God's word. We know Matthew 24, 35 says that heaven and earth will pass away. But Jesus says, my word will not pass away. So we know that there's only two things that are going to last forever that we see around us today. The souls of men and the word of God. So now, as those who belong to Jesus, we need to invest our life in the word of God. We stand on the word of God. We think biblically. Now, let's think just for a few moments about the issues of our life and culture that need a biblical worldview. I read recently, only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. That means they look to the Bible to determine their life, their morality, their salvation. 6%. They also said that only 21% of evangelicals, those who believe in the good news that were saved by Jesus alone, have a biblical worldview. So, we're to have and stand on God's word and have a biblical worldview. We are to think biblically. So let's think about the issues that are going on around us today. Let's think about the issue of life. The issue of life. Genesis 1 and 2, we found that we find that God is the author of life. That God is the one who created. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it tells us that God created man in his own image. He created them male and female. In Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, David gives us the picture that life in the womb is precious. He says that I was wove together or embroidered together in my mother's womb. For you formed me and you wove me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It does not say I was a chance or I was a surprise. The picture is, is I was fearfully and wonderfully made. In Jeremiah chapter 1 in verse number 5, the Lord speaks to the prophet Jeremiah and says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I sanctified you. Before he was even born, he was sanctified, set apart by God. That talks about the preciousness of life in the womb. Then let's move to the New Testament. Because in Luke chapter 1, verse 41 and 44, we find the occasion where where Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Remember, Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, the babe, leapt in her womb in Luke 1, 41 and 44. And this is what we find. The word, the Greek word that is used there, the word brephos that is used in Luke 1, 41 and 44, listen, is the same word used in Luke 2, 12, where the shepherds were told, and this will be a sign to you, you will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Same Greek word, baby in the womb, baby outside the womb. God looks at life of the unborn, their babies. The issue of life needs to have a biblical worldview. Then we think about the issue in Genesis chapter 1, the issue of gender. He created them male and female, Genesis 1, 27. He tells us how he did that in Genesis chapter 2. From Adam he made from the dust and woman he made from 
from the, the rib of the man. He gave each of them distinct physical characteristics and distinct roles so that we find that God created male and female and gender roles that assign to male and female. So we think biblically, we think biblically that men are given specific roles in the home and women are given specific roles as we look throughout scripture in the home, men and women. Then we think about race. Is race an issue in our day? Well, let's go back. Genesis chapter 1. We find that God creates Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 2. We find how he created them. Genesis chapter 4. Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. They had two boys, Cain and Abel. What we find is that every one of us are related a member of the human race relating all the way back to Adam and Eve. We're related. Now, we look in Genesis chapter 6 where God looked upon the world and saw the evilness thereof and destroyed the world, and we find that we can go back and say all of us are related to Noah, to Ham, Shem, and Japheth. We're related. Genesis chapter 11, we find that the Tower of Babel, that God confuses the languages and the people begin to spread out and go different ways. And they did. But guess what? They're part of one human race. Now, over that time, as they moved to different areas and people began to have uh, uh, descendants and, and children, we find that that physical characteristics began to become predominant. So that skin color or height or hair color or eye shape, all of those kinds of things came into play. But listen. We are all part of one human race created in the image of God and racism is an abomination to God and an absolute sin. James chapter two makes it very clear. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with partiality? He says, if there comes into your assembly a, a man with a gold ring and fine clothes, and there comes in also a poor man in, in dirty clothes, and you say to him who has the nice clothes, hey, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, why don't you stand back there, or maybe you can sit here on the floor as my, at my footstool. And the Lord says, are you not partial in yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He says down in James chapter 2 and verse number 8, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you will love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted of the law as a transgressor. All of us created in the image of God. And though we have different beliefs and we can disagree vehemently, we need to act respectfully toward others as those who are created in God's image. It's the issue. The issue of life, the issue of gender, the issue of race. How about the issue of marriage? Genesis chapter 2 makes it very clear that marriage is between a man and a woman. God made it very clear. And people say, well, Jesus didn't say anything about that. Oh, yes, he did. 
In Matthew chapter 19, in verse number five, Jesus takes the Old Testament quote where it says, a father shall leave his, a, 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 a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus then adds, and what God has brought together, let not man put asunder. The picture is, is that throughout the scripture, when we stand on the word of God, we recognize a biblical worldview says, I don't care what the culture says, the culture can change. The tide of thought shifts, but God's word abides forever and this is where we stand. We have a biblical worldview. Now let's talk about the family real quick because understand this. When we say, race, that God loves the world, and that we should not show uh, any type of racism. Understand that black lives matter. We would all say black lives matter. All of us would say that. But the movement of black lives matter has in its manifesto a desire to destroy the nuclear family. That is an organization. So understand, what does the Bible say about the family? Well, God puts a man together and a woman together and they have kids. And in Malachi chapter two and verse number 15, he says that he desires godly offspring. And in Ephesians chapter six, he tells us that, that husbands are, are, are to, to lead and not provoke their children to wrath. The picture is, is that there is to be a family and that we are to be together. We are a unit. Before God even created the church, he created marriage and he created the family. And so we have to look with eyes of a biblical world view. It is important for us to understand this. Don't be part of that, that uh, 80 or 79, 80% of people who say, yeah, I know Jesus is in my life, but it's a cultural anything goes. I can believe what I want. No, you can't. If you call yourself a believer, then believe. Stand on God's word. Stand on God's word. Think biblically. Think biblically. Not what culture says, not what psychology says, not what sociology says. And listen, this day doesn't surprise God, okay? We're 2,000 years on this side of the cross. But God is not one bit surprised on how our culture is leaning. He told us these things are going to happen. We're going to look more at this over the next couple of weeks. He told us this was going to happen, and he gave us the word to equip us. All right, we've got to move quickly. He says that we're to stand on God's word. Next, as we think about standing on God's word, we're to follow that up in verse number seven and pursue godliness. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. Here's the picture. We stand on God's word and we work out. We work out our faith. But listen, you can tell people who work out. Can people tell that we're working out spiritually by the fruit of the spirit that we show? By what we tweet or put on Facebook? By how we respond to someone who disagrees with us? Now, that does not mean that we have to shy back, but Ephesians 4 makes sure they remind us that we are to speak the truth in love. So that as we 
pursue and exercise ourselves in godliness, that comes out through the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience. These are some challenging areas of our life, especially in the culture war in which we live. But we're to love even, listen, those who are our enemies and pray for them who spitefully use us. Pursue godliness. Live out your faith. Stand on God's word and think biblically. But listen, live like Jesus. That's the picture. And then finally, we trust the living God. Boy, there's so much to say. He says in verse number uh, eight, he says, godly exercise is going to profit just a little bit. But then in verse number nine, he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach. It wasn't easy for Paul in that culture, in the Roman Empire in the first century. He suffered reproach. People hated him because of what he believed. He was persecuted for what he believed. People disagreed for him, uh, disagreed with him for what he believed. But notice what he says. Godliness is is profitable for all. (laughs) Back up in verse 8. But he says in verse number 10, to this end we labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who's the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. In other words, there's some out there. Jesus died. And if they'll come and receive him, they can be saved. But listen, They've got to know where we stand, but they've got to see how we stand. And we demonstrate that through our love and sharing the truth and trusting God when it seems like everything else is falling apart. Can I tell you, November's going to come. There's an election that's going to happen. We may find out election night. We may find out Christmas who our next president is going to be. But can I give you one challenge? We don't trust Washington. We trust the living God. He is on the throne. He has always been on the throne. He always will be on the throne. And so you trust the one who sits on the throne. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, may we be people who stand on it. May we think biblically, live godly, and trust you wholeheartedly. And may people in the world around us see it. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.